Morning, church. What a beautiful song and a glorious day to be praising the Lord, right? And you might be thinking it's a little gloomy outside, but, you know, this morning I got up and I was running. Uh, shout out to my Cross Point uh, cruiser friends out here. But, uh, you know, I was out running on the trails this morning and it's dark. And, uh, you know, I was just watching the sun come up and, you know, listening to the creek and, you know, where the creek would have been just quietly babbling now, you know, all the snow's melting. It's kind of rushing a little bit more. And, you know, I was just out there before the city's awake and, you know, just thinking about how blessed uh, that I am personally, but all of us, you know, and, and not just because I was out there doing something that I like to do, but, you know, I'm just, we're, we're blessed. We're part of God's family and, you know, we're, we're eternal beings. I mean, we're awaiting a glory in heaven and, you know, it's, it's something just overwhelmed me this morning with that. And I don't got any point to share other than, you know, just sharing that. But, um, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a real blessing uh, to be a part of God's family. And so this morning we're going to go get back into Luke. Uh, we've learned so far that Luke's kind of creating this accurate uh, representation of Jesus for his gospel. We're told about, you know, the anticipation of Jesus. We're given the uh, miraculous story of his incarnation, his, his, his birth. Uh, we've read the accounts and the uh, witnesses like Elizabeth and Zechariah, Zacharias, uh, Mary and Joseph. Um, even the eyewitness testimony of the scholars who witnessed the adolescent Jesus, um, you know, with his handling of, of the word of God. Um, in chapter three, we've seen John the Baptist, you know, who's the, the last testament of, of the old or last prophet of the Old Testament. Uh, proclaiming to the people to prepare their hearts. Um, and we got to see uh, Jesus come down and be baptized by John. And here we're even, we hear from God as God proclaims from the heavens that, you know, here's Jesus, his beloved son in whom he's well pleased. You know, following that, we're given Jesus' lineage, his ancestry. It's all validating his, his majestic bloodline, declaring that he's the, the rightful descendant to the throne of David. And now, you know, the testimony of Luke kind of begs the question, you know, if all these people, all these events testify that Jesus is the Christ, well, what does that mean? Like, what's Jesus going to do? What are the implications of him actually being the Son of God? And so here at the apex of John the Baptist's witness, you know, in front of all of these multitudes is where the Spirit of God descends on Jesus and then leads him into the wilderness. You know, for 30 years, Jesus has experienced the, the human life. You know, he's witnessed the suffering that sin has caused in this fallen world. He, he was a victim of, of Herod's evil, right? His parents had to escape. They had to, to protect Jesus by fleeing to Egypt. And he's experienced Israel without that glory of God in the temple for hundreds of years. You know, Israel abandoned God. God was no longer dwelling with the people in the temple. They had this mechanical form of religion. And although there was a small remnant of those that were waiting for the Messiah, most were looking forward to a time when Israel would once again, return to that physical and military dominance that they once had. They weren't looking for an inward spiritual renewal. And so Jesus, you know, he's witnessed after, you know, th several thousands of years since Adam and Eve and Abraham and Moses and the establishment of Israel. 
God's gospel still hasn't reached all the nations. You know, Israel's failed in, as God's emissaries, as, as his ambassadors to the world. And now it's come time for Jesus to do what he was sent here to do. The witnesses testified. The Spirit is beginning to move Jesus with power. And Jesus was about to launch the most important work ever performed on earth by a man. You know, his work's going to determine the fate of every single person in the world ever lived. And he's probably, you know, in the wilderness here to, to focus on God, on God's spirit, on God's word, on his mission that God had laid out for him. He's contemplating the, the devastating effects that sin is having, having on this world. You know, probably thinking like what it's going to take for him to reverse that curse, that penalty of death. He's not focused on the conveniences of the world in these 40 days here, but on God. And God is providing for Jesus the first test in his ministry. The first opportunity to demonstrate who he is, to validate who the scriptures say that Jesus is and that he would be. You know, if Jesus is the son of God, then, you know, he's going to have to demonstrate power over evil. He's going to have to demonstrate power over Satan, over demons. And Satan's been waiting for this battle for a long time. You know, he's been on the heels of Jesus since he, he broke the plains of heaven and he came down to this earth. And you might be thinking because Jesus has voluntarily gave up some of those divine attributes of his set aside for a time, that Jesus is vulnerable, that he's weak. You know, Satan sees an opportunity here to derail the plan of God in history. Satan never attacked Jesus in heaven. He waited for him to be manifested in human, humanity. You know, probably thinking that he was successful in infiltrating every single human being up until this point, that he can do the same thing with Jesus. Satan also knows that if Jesus goes to the cross, then he's defeated. His days are numbered. And so Satan... He's been itching at this opportune time to destroy this second Adam. And if Jesus is to fail here, like how could he redeem the souls of earth? How could he claim to be God's son? How could, he, how could, he, uh, how could God the Father be considered trustworthy? You know, Jesus' temptation and battle with Satan, they're significant for us as a people of God because it proves to us that, and the world, that Jesus deserved God the Father's approval. That he is indeed the Son of God and that what he says should be listened to. That it's true, that it has merit. His temptation, you know, exposes the attacks of the enemy, reveals to us how we're to overcome temptation, but... But we also see how this temptation prepared Jesus for his ministry. And it qualifies him to be our high priest. The one who's worthy of being our intercessor between man and God. You know, proves to us his humanity. You know, if he's successful in fending off Satan and, and declaring victory, it foreshadows his power to reverse the curse of Adam and give new life. Jesus' commitment to God, his faithfulness, his dependence, his, his trust on God's word, they're an example for all of his disciples throughout time. But more importantly, they solidify his position as the almighty, all-powerful, sovereign Messiah, Christ, Son of God. 
And so with that introduction, that presupposition, I want you to open up your Bibles to Luke 4, and we're going to let the Lord teach us here this morning. Uh, Luke 4, 1, it says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led, into, it led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Two times the Spirit of God is uh, mentioned here. First, we see Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. He just had this dramatic experience with the Spirit, right? At his baptism, he came to the Jordan River. You know, last week, Pastor Joel was telling us how uh, he came to fulfill all righteousness, right? To confirm his allegiance to God, to confirm the preaching of John the Baptist. And even John the Baptist, and, and we know from John one twenty nine, claimed, you know, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we see Luke in the previous chapter describe the Holy Spirit descending in bodily form on Jesus like a dove. You know, and Jesus was not just filled with the Spirit either. The text here says that he was led by the Spirit. In the, in the, in the Greek, in the original language, um, this phrase is a ghetto en toai pneumatai. But that word en in that phrase, it means in. Okay, which means that Jesus wasn't just filled. He wasn't merely led. He was in the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit and him were one. Walking step by step, they were in tune, they are in unison. And if you've ever asked yourself the question, like, how do I live a spirit-filled life? Then first, you got to ask yourself, like, are you in the spirit? Right? Ask yourself, like, is my life entirely controlled by the Holy Spirit? Jesus' life was. Jesus' life was in, in total submission to the Father in heaven. And in order for Jesus or anybody else to do the will of God in this earth, it's necessary for you to be in the Spirit. And it should be a believer's lifelong goal, a lifelong pursuit to be in the middle of God's will by abiding in His Spirit. And that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is just going to make our life a, a, a bed of roses, right? I mean, we know better than that. It's not going to make our, our life easy and free from trouble. The text says here that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. You know, it, it was necessary for Jesus to, to spend time alone with God in a, in a barren desert. You know, it's necessary for preparation. Like, if we're going to do God's work, we need to prepare our hearts and our minds and our souls. But the Spirit here is leading him also on behalf of God to test him, to try him. He leads him into this place that was too rugged for, you know, domesticated animals. There was no sheep and ox and herdsmen in this area. You know, it was deep uh, ravines and cliffs and boulders. It's desolate. It's full of, full of wild animals. But this is where the Spirit leads Jesus to, to try him, to test him. And trials, you know, they make us tougher. They toughen us up. They make us strong. They give us a, a greater assurance, a greater courage so that we can face whatever lies ahead. And the Father here is preparing Jesus for the ministry that is coming. And so it's so important here to have perspective because, you know, God doesn't always bring trials in our life because we did something wrong, right? Jesus is not here because, uh, you know, he did something wrong because he made a bad choice somewhere in his life. He's here in this circumstance because God is showing him something. He's preparing him for the future. And so it's good to be in the spirit so we can discern 
what God is teaching us when we fall into these various trials. But the Spirit here is leading Jesus here to test him, to stretch his faith. And you can believe when God is building up his own like Jesus, when he's preparing somebody to do his work, then Satan is going to rear his ugly head. And that's exactly what he does. Look at verse 2 here. It says, being tempted for 40 days by the devil, and in those days he ate nothing, and afterward when they had ended, he was hungry. Jesus was tempted his whole life to sin. You know, he was, he was even tempted within these 40 days, but it's at the very end when Jesus is most alone, most physically needy, most hungry, you know, most vulnerable that Satan brings the, 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 the greatest temptation. You know, and there's some significance here in the, in the 40 days uh, that's mentioned. You know, the great flood in Genesis was 40 days, right? Moses spent 40 days on Mount Sinai. Uh, the Israelites wandered the desert for 40 years. Goliath taunted Israel for 40 days before David claimed a victory over him. Elijah spent 40 days in the wilderness. But in all those times, God was preparing his people for a specific task. And God is preparing Jesus here. And there's some significance also here in Jesus' quotes of uh, Deuteronomy. This is his, re his response, or I'll quote from Deuteronomy. Um, but Deuteronomy, you know, talks about how the Israelites also had some tests from God. Right? They were faced with some temptations. A whole generation of people that left Egypt and were wandering the wilderness for 40 years never actually made it to the promised land. And they had the leading of God's spirit. They had a, a pillar by night and a cloud by day. They had manna from heaven. They had clothes that never wore out. They had all of these physical provisions from God, and yet they failed. And Jesus doesn't have any of that, and yet he succeeds where Israel failed. But listen, we're told that the devil tempted our Lord for 40 days, and we can't get into a study too deep about Satan right now if we want to finish the sermon, but Satan's a real being. He's created, yet he's a rebellious fallen angel. He's not a, 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 you know, a symbol or an idea. He's constantly fighting God and, and those who follow and obey God. He's a real person. And he's always working and he's always attempting to draw people away from God into darkness. And the name devil, Satan, you know, it means slanderer or accuser. In Isaiah, uh, it's, Isaiah says his original name was Lucifer. In 14.12 of Isaiah, Isaiah says this about him, that he was blameless in his ways from the days that he was created until unrighteousness was found in him. He's the author of sin. He's the author of rebellion in this universe. He became arrogant and prideful. In verse 13, uh, it says that he sought to raise his throne above the stars of God, make himself like the most high, right? In his effort to be greater than the Father in heaven, he convinced a third of the angels to rebel against God. And he's described in the Bible as a murderer, as a liar, as a, as a dragon, as a snake, as the evil one, as the god of this world, as the prince of the power of the air, a roaring lion. But listen, he's, he's also called a tempter. 
And we see him do this with Adam and Eve in the garden, and, and he's hoping to find success with Jesus here as well. That word tempted, it means to be put to the test, to see what good or evil are in a person, what strengths or weaknesses are in a person. And temptation at its, at its, at its base, at its root, right, is, is like a, a passion, an appetite, a, a propensity, a craving that comes deep within the heart of a person. It doesn't come from God. You know, in fact, James 1.3 says that, let no one say that he's, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But God sees temptation as a measure of faith, right? As a barometer of truthfulness. And he uses those who conquer temptation for greater future work in his kingdom. But Satan, you know, he uses temptation to stop God's work to wreak havoc in the lives of people on the earth, to keep them from being saved, to keep God's work from being done. He blinds them with worldly passions, with lusts of the flesh, like Jacob was talking about earlier, with pride of life. He tries to use it here to derail Jesus' mission to the cross. And Satan's going to specifically use temptations uh, with Jesus to seize his kingdom prematurely outside of God's timeline and in God's way and take, you know, that messianic power into his own hands and forsake the will of God. And so Jesus, after 40 days without food, being alone in the wilderness, physically suffering, in pain, in a weakened state, he endures three Temptations by Satan. Uh, look at uh, temptation one here in Luke 4, 3 through 4. It says, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. This first temptation right here is for Jesus to meet the necessities of life by his own power, by using his own abilities. You know, it raises the questions of, of God's care and provision. If Satan is saying something like, Satan, Satan is saying something like, something must be wrong with God's love if his own beloved son is hungry. You know, Jesus was very hungry, and of course he had the power to, to, to create uh, you know, bread out of these stones, right, to meet his need. But Jesus would have misused his power if he would have done so. He would have been using it in, in an illegitimate way. And it, Jesus would have been taking independent action apart from God. And it would have represented a, a lack of faith in God's goodness. Satan also tempts us believers too to trust in our own abilities you know we trust in our, our brains our intellect we trust in our, our our physical capabilities we trust in our status and our money and our resources you know jesus's power wasn't given to use on himself but to demonstrate his deity you know showing men that he's the son of god you know, in the Gospels, you never see Jews, G Jesus use his, 
his power for himself, for his own ends. He's always using his power as a means to, to give evidence to the truth that he was claiming. That he was coming here to save the world. You know, Satan phrases this temptation in an interesting way. He says, if you are the son of God, and that word if there, you know, it doesn't imply doubt. You know, both Satan and Jesus knew the truth. They knew who each other was. Satan here is tempting Jesus with his own power, and he, he knows Jesus has the power to create this bread. He knows he has the might to satisfy his appetite. But what he's really saying here is that God's son shouldn't be hungry. You know, Jesus, you're the, you're the son of God. You don't deserve this. And the devil is trying to get Jesus to take a shortcut, to solve his immediate problem by relying on himself and not the Father. And if Jesus would have used his, his power for himself, you know, he would have been trusting in himself. He would have been trusting himself, not the Father in heaven, and he'd be acting independently. And by extension, he'd also be saying that men could use their own abilities to center on themselves instead of helping a world in need. You know, he'd be setting an example for men to use their own abilities to build themselves up. Pride. Instead of honoring God. And so Jesus' response here is from Deuteronomy 8.3. He says, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And Jesus' answer to Satan is that something more than physical food is needed for sustenance in life. Man needs to be fed spiritually. He needs his spiritual needs met. And as necessary as food is, you know, it's not as important as being sustained by the word of God. Satan often works by persuading people to take action, even right action, for the wrong reasons or at the wrong time. You know, many people fall into sin by attempting to fulfill legitimate desires outside of God's will or ahead of his times table. You know, you, you ever try to rush God? You ever try to, uh, you know, make things happen on your own schedule? You know, we, we know how that turns out. And later on, you know, Jesus tells his disciples in <coughs> John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And to accomplish his work, he tells his disciples in Matthew 6, 31, 33, Father, the Father knows you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You know, Jesus sets the example to not doubt God's love, to trust, to submit to his will, to trust in the Spirit's leading, because God will prove himself faithful. But we need to be patient and we need to depend on God. You know, too often believers are, are tempted to doubt God's love. And we question why he's permitted things to go wrong in our lives. You know, why disappointing circumstances happen, but that's the temptation of Satan to distract us from God's will. You know, Jesus showed Satan, Satan that he wasn't going to be tempted the way that the Israelites were. You know, in the desert, instead, he was going to humble himself to God. He was going to trust in that plan. You know, Warren Wiersbe, he's got a, a commentary, and, and uh, he said this in an application for the church, but I thought it was a good quote. He says, Christ must be first in everything, or he is first in nothing. 
It's better to be hungry in the will of God than satisfied out of the will of God. Right? You know, Jesus places God above all of his needs. And like Jesus, you and I need food for the inner person to satisfy our deepest needs as human beings. And so Satan comes up with another temptation in Luke 4, 5 through 8. He says this, Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered, and he said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You know, this second temptation here was for Jesus to, to seek his kingdom through compromise. Jesus came to earth to seek and to save men eternally, to secure their loyalty for God, to set up a kingdom that's going to last forever. And the way that God had established him to do that was by means of a cross. You know, Satan tempted Jesus to take the, the earthly kingdom right then and there. You know, it would have meant for Jesus to, that he would be able to obtain the promise of God to inherit the earth without experiencing the suffering and the agony of his mission. What a temptation for Jesus. You know, Satan is saying here, you don't have to be hungry, Jesus. You don't have to live in poverty. You don't have to walk around with nowhere to lay your head. You don't have to deal with rejection from your people. You don't have to run from the rulers in Judea. You don't have to endure a brutal, illegal trial. And you certainly don't have to die by the way of a painful crucifixion. Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He flashes across Jesus' mind all the kingdoms in all their glory. And he basically tells Jesus he can have all of this without even going to the cross. All he's got to do is pledge allegiance to the devil. And the devil is saying here, you know, the world is mine. It's not God's. If you want anything to do worthwhile here, then recognize that fact, like I'm the God of this age. And of course, Satan claims to have control, to possess uh, all the glory of the world. And for a time, that's true. He's got some influence over the rule and over this earth, over the systems of this world. You know, he uses those things to bring people away from God. Ephesians 2.2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians 4.4 calls him the God of this world. And although he has some temporary sway for a time, he offers Jesus all the possessions of it. And Satan's a liar. Pretending to offer what was not even his to give. You know, his offer is based on nothing but evil pride, and he's enticing Jesus with everything that God promises, but at the compromise of his standards, at the compromise of his loyalty, of his faith, faithfulness to God, and at the compromise of his ministry and mission. And he's hoping to distort Jesus' perspective by making him focus on, on worldly power instead of God's mission. 
Listen, Satan knows that one day Jesus is going to rule over the earth. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 tells us, Therefore God has also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those of earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, the offer from Satan was a way of getting Jesus to change God's timing, to go against God's will and way. And he's basically saying, like, why wait? I can give this to you now. You know, all you got to do is bow down to me. This would have been the devil's ultimate coup, right? His ultimate rebellion to get the Son of God to swear allegiance to him. It's evil. And Jesus' answer is swift here. He, he quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. He says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It's only God whom Jesus is going to worship. Nothing in this world, not the standards of this world. Not false gods. And Jesus knew there was a wrong way and a right way to achieve his ends. And being the son of God, he chooses the right way. You know, and Satan never mentions anything about service to Jesus, but Jesus knew whatever we worship, we serve. Service to the Lord is, is true freedom, while service to Satan is bondage. You know, isn't it amazing that God's pattern starts in suffering but ends in glory, while Satan's pattern starts in glory and ends in suffering? You know, some of my most favorite people, my favorite Christians are those who have had rough childhoods or rough lives or have or dealt with, you know, really traumatic circumstances because to see them faithful on the other side of those things, glorifying God and having a true joy and contentment in their heart is just, it's amazing. And it's, it's such a, an encouragement and testimony to the power of God. You know, from a mission standpoint, you know, don't you want those types of people standing beside you? You know, I jokingly tell my kids, my sons, you know, not, not to surround themselves, their, their true friends, those that are going to be doing battle with in the world. Don't ever surround yourself with nobody that's never, not, somebody that's never been punched in the face. You know, it, 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 it sounds funny, but, it, you know, it, it's, would you... When you're thinking about a brother or sister in the Lord, like, who's been knocked down, who's taken some lumps for Christ, who's endured pain but still gets back up and presses forward. You know, Satan wants us to sacrifice eternal things for temporary, easy way out. Jesus didn't argue with Satan about who owned the world. He didn't substantiate the devil's claim by worshiping him. You know, Deuteronomy 6.13, what Jesus just quoted to him is followed by a passage in Scripture that every Jew would have recited daily. It's called the Shema. 
and you might know it as the, great com- as the greatest commandment, but in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets to your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You know, too often Christians are enticed and they're derailed from God's mission in life because they take the easy way out. They rely on the strong faith of somebody else. They, they let their affections wander. You know, they, they rely on some confession that they made years back in their life. You know, sometimes, unfortunately, they equate success in, the, in, the, in, in a secular sense with success in the spiritual sense. Jesus is trusting in God's promises. Jesus knew that there was no shortcuts to glory. Only by abiding in the Father's will would he see glory. There's no shortcuts for us either in the Christian life to spiritual victory to spiritual maturity, you know, to bringing about our eternal glory. And if God's own perfect son has to hang on a tree before he can sit on a throne, then what makes us think that our lives are going to be any easier? What a temptation. But Satan's not done. He goes on in Luke 4, 9 through 12. He says, then he brought him to Jerusalem. And he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered, and he said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. You know, Jerusalem was the religious and political seat of Palestine, and the temple was the tallest building in the area. You know, the pinnacle may have been the the corner that kind of jutted out the hillside overlooking the valley below, like the southeast corner of the temple complex, uh, looking over the Kidron Valley. I haven't been as favored as as some to visit the Holy Land to see Israel. I have to get all my stuff from books and internet and historians like Josephus, you mentioned last week, um, who mentioned that this was like 450 feet up in the air. You know, if you ever want to know about Israel, too, Pastor Hoja has some great illustrations in his mind that he loves to speak about, and they're awesome. They make me feel like I'm there. Um, But, you know, this would have been a point where Jesus would have seen all of Jerusalem behind him and the countryside for miles in front of him. And Satan's first of two, two attempts here at getting Jesus to sin, they failed, and so he's got this one last trick up his sleeve, and He's going to use God's own words to get Jesus to act outside of God's will. And he he brings Jesus to this corner where he sees everything. And he quotes to him Psalm 91, 11 and 12. You know, if you're, you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. It's written, he shall give angels charge over you to keep you. In their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Satan is saying here, look, Jesus, before you venture out on your ministry, you, got, you better be sure that God's going to take care of you. 
right? This psalm guarantees your protection, so just jump. You know, make God prove himself. If you're the son of God, God's going to rescue you. You know, if you trust God, you'll jump. Just let go. Let God take care of you. Though we know the devil's plans are sinister in nature. He's offering Jesus an opportunity to fulfill his word. He's quoting a messianic psalm where God pledges to protect the Messiah. You know, the devil's hoping that one of two things is going to happen here. Either Jesus is going to fall to his death or God is going to have to intervene and save Jesus and prove that Jesus acted outside of God's will. You know, the temptation here is for Jesus to presume on the Father, to force God into a position to act. Jumping from the rooftop in order to test God's promises wouldn't have been in the, God's will for Jesus. You know, and even in the context of Psalm 91, this protection was for those who loved and served God, but they found themselves in danger. Not protected under some artificial crisis in order to test God. But Jesus refuses to act, and he responds by saying, It's been written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You know, isn't it sobering to know that Satan uses Scripture to tempt people to sin? You know, it's unfortunate, but sometimes we use Bible verses to justify things to ourselves. Now, we know are wrong. You know, we try to find these convic convincing and attractive reasons to justify our sin. And it's why we have these apostate churches who take God's word out of context and they twist it up to satiate their own sinful lifestyles. And it's important for us not to just know a few verses in the Bible, but to understand its context, to understand who it's written to, to understand why it was written to them. You know, that way we have a fuller understanding of God's will, his, his expectation in our lives. You know, I'm so thankful that we have pastors who invest themselves in the truth, in the study of God's word, you know, teaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, not skipping over anything, not preaching topical preaching, we're not preaching, you know, for sound bites. But Jesus' response here was Deuteronomy 6.16, don't tempt the Lord your God. And the rest of 6.16 says, as you tempted him in Massah. In this passage, Moses was referring to an incident uh, that happened in the Israelites' wilderness wanderings. It's recorded in Exodus 17, 1 through 7. But this is where the people were hungry and they were thirsty and they were threatening to go back to bondage in Egypt unless God supplied them food and water. And God ended up supplying the, the water and the food, but only after the people quarreled and they tested the Lord. In Exodus 17, 7, it says, So he called that name, the name of that place Massah, meaning temptations and trials, and Meribah, which means strife or contention, because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? I mean, that's bold. You wonder why they didn't make it into the promised land. You know, if Jesus were to jump from the temple, it would have been this ridiculous test of God's power. Out of God's will. And it's not for each one of us to question or tempt God either with, with questions why. Like who are we to question God why? You know, or better yet, like 
Who are we that God should supply us with every answer that our heart desires? It's arrogant, it's prideful, and it's reminiscent of, of Satan with his sense of entitlement. It's one thing for a believer in the will of God to to claim that protection, that care, that provision from God, but it's another thing to to willfully place yourself in harm's way, you know, and expect God to rescue you. That's tempting God. You know, how many of us ask God to to deliver us from sin only to keep going back to it? Proverbs 26, 11 says, As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. It's a dangerous thing to try God's patience, even though he's long-suffering and gracious. You know, the devil's temptation is so especially dangerous because it, it encourages people to exercise faith in God and at the same time brazenly demand things of him. You know, God's not a genie. Jesus' example, on the other hand, was submissive to God's will. Regardless of where that took him, he followed the Spirit's leading. He trusted God. He trusted God's timing. And after these three vicious attacks on the character of Christ in his most vulnerable earthly state, besides the cross, the devil retreats to plan his next attack on Christ. And in Luke 4, 13, it says, Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. You know, the devil's relentless and he never stops. His aim is to wreak havoc on the earth and in the lives of God's people. And now Christ has defeated Satan in his first battle. And Jesus has proved what no other man in history has done. He's claimed victory over Satan, and he's demonstrated a power that's unmatched in any human before him up until this point. He's assured of God's faithfulness. He's in tune with the will and the spirit of God, and he's now prepared to do the Lord's work, to begin his ministry that's going to save the world. Satan brought death, but Christ is going to prove that he has the power to give life. So I just want to conclude by saying, you know, if Jesus were to fail, you know, he wouldn't have been God's son. The father would have been a liar. He would have been imperfect. Jesus would have been unable to redeem sinners. The whole gospel, all of scripture would be a fairy tale. But Jesus came through. Jesus showed us he has the power to defeat evil. He has the power to make things right with sinners. He has the ability to redeem the world back to God. He has the might. He has the power. He has the authority to be the righteous, perfect ruler who has no enemies, who has no opposition worthy of standing in his way. He proves to us the goodness and the provision of God. And by his example, by his victory, we can come to him and hope for a new life. We can come to him for a future in heaven. We can come to him to rescue us from our sin. And he entered this life not just to endure the cross, but to be a part of us, to experience humanity in its fullness. You know, the good and the bad. Even though he's without sin, he still felt the heaviness, the the ramifications and the, the temptation of sin. 
Hebrews 4.15 says, We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And he lived in this world among us, having a family, having a job, having social issues in his community. He was here to identify as one of us. He knows us. He knows our circumstances. And he desires to know us personally. And he endured these temptations for each one of us. And so if you found yourself on the wrong side of heaven this morning, battling with God, like realize there, there's no hope in this life apart from the righteousness of Christ. You know, and the fact that, that you're here hearing this and, and you have breath in your lungs to proclaim his name, it's an opportunity for you to be right with God this morning. And so I pray that you would commit yourself to him this morning. Church, we got a, a God that is beyond description, right? There's no words that can rightly convey his majesty or his glory. Amen? All right, let's pray.